Hi there, good evening everyone and welcome to 21st Century Saints. We're so happy to have you guys with us again. Uh, thank you for tuning in. And um, I would love to say in sunny Scotland, but unfortunately we've had a bit of snow today. Um, thankfully, it's not lying on the ground. Um, Jane's had to just pop off to deal with her son at the moment. I think she's forgot to mute her mic. So that's what the bit of um, noise in the background is, I'm afraid. Um, so this evening we are joined by the lovely Renee Steelman. Would you say hi? This is making her regular appearance as usual. Yeah. <laughs> She's going to have her own podcast someday. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So we're so happy to have you on Twenty First Century Saints this evening, Renee. I'm um, so thrilled. We're so grateful for you giving us the time. Yeah, again. Jane, you haven't muted your mic, sweetheart. <laughs> um, of course that happened. <laughs> I did explain. I said Jane's having to deal with some juggling, stuff. Juggling, juggling. That's called motherhood. Oh, no, sorry. I, oh, I just so, banged it, Adam. I'm so I sorry. So for those of okay. you who um, are maybe joining us for the first time after everything that's been happening over the past couple of weeks, guys, this is our podcast. We are, we are mothers. We are doing this where we're looking after our children. Our children come in crying and feeling crazy and we balance our kids on our <laughs> hip and we are like, shut up and eat some catchy while we do this. So I'm sorry that was less smooth than we would normally. That's okay, it. but we always say that. This is real life for us. So. This, is, this is our real life. So thank you to the viewers who've been patient thus far. In addition, um, in case you're all wondering, as my lips are slowly turning blue, <laughs> I am ill, and so um, fortunately we have a guest who has so many um, interesting things that we want to hear about. In the event, guys, that I do keel over, pass out and die live on air, you have my permission to take my bloated, diseased corpse, pin a note to it, throw it on Brad Wilcox's porch and just saying screw you, something like that. And that is all I have to say in the matter at the moment. Um, I'm sure you'll have lots to say later on. Okay, so with that, I'd like to um, introduce you all to our special guest tonight. Renee, um, thank you so much for giving us your time tonight. And what I'd like to do is just jump right in with uh, your introduction. Do you want to tell everyone a little bit about your background, uh, who you are and all of those good things? Oh my gosh, what's my background? How far back to, oh, wait, Jane, just for you, I should start out by saying that my um, great grandmother was born in Edinburgh and um, I've been to England and I love it. And my stepfather was from Malvern, England. And I should give you the whole, right? That's what we yeah. normally, yeah, that's what yeah, we, yeah. we We think of you guys often. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm sure you start every talk with, I visited California. I was, my great grandmother moved to Minnesota. I mean, no, no, we don't care. I love when you said that in the British rescue. You're like, we don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's lovely. I think we just hear it so often. So yeah, I, I mean, half of Scotland went to America. So I suppose we should have a vested interest, but we don't. I don't. Well, I don't unless you're Native American, we probably all came from 
Scotland, England, Ireland, Germany, France, <laughs> Spain, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it's like that doesn't make you unique or special. I'm sorry to tell you that, but yeah. Thank you. It does. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, yes. tell us about you. Well, okay. So I um, was born and raised in Illinois, Midwest, corn country. Um, you know, my mother had uh, seven siblings and um, it just, I had a really great childhood. My mother's oldest sister was a Mormon and I don't remember what her con conversion story was, but I remember that she was a Mormon and I went to church with her a few times, but it never seemed to interfere with any family gatherings or anything like that. But then my mother, um, the missionaries knocked on our door. I was 12 and my mother let them in and took the discussions and we, um, we joined the church. I have a, a brother that's three years older than I am. And he was, so he was 15. Uh, we got baptized. And then a year later we went to the temple and, and we were all sealed. I was actually sealed to my stepfather, um, which is interesting because I had to get a note from my biological father, giving my stepfather permission that I could be sealed to him. And it's so funny because now that I've resigned my membership from the church, I look back on that and I think, when my my aunt was sitting at the table and she said, um, so what does this mean? Does this mean that your father won't be your father in heaven? And I was like, I guess, I don't know, I'm 12. I don't know, you know? And so, and I look, I look at it now and I'm thinking, okay, this is a church that talks about temple work, sealing families together, being an eternal family. And yet you just very easily wiped my entire genealogy off of my, off of my, um, my life. And I was now attached to this man that I've only known for three years that I am not biologically related to at all, who was a very good man. I loved him. But, um, and so when I started doing temple work, I did work for the Barkley side of the family because those are my people. And um, so it's, it's just very interesting how, as you grow up, and what I did as a child and my belief systems, and it wasn't until last year, oh, thank you, COVID, um, when we all kind of <laughs> took a break and we, you know, that I started hearing things. And, and like Elena, I was like um, shocked. I was just shocked at some of the things that I was hearing. And so I had to start reevaluating. Anyway, um, I met my husband at a church dance. He already had his mission papers in. He was heading to Indiana to serve his mission. I had already joined the United States Navy. So I was due to go active duty in January. So we knew that even though we had just met and we started dating, um, that we were going to say goodbye in a few months. So um, right before he left on his mission, he said, well, um, I'd like to get you something before I go. Is there anything that you'd like? And I'm like, well, I'd kind of like a pre-engagement ring, you know, and because that in the 70s, pre-engagement rings, that was the thing, you know. Um, so we went into a jewelry store and he um, stood over with the jeweler and watched a football game that was on. I should have, that was a red flag. I should have known right then that there would be no more jewelry in my future. But anyway, so he, he, <laughs> he and the jeweler had a great conversation and I was with another jeweler and I'm like, pre-engagement rings. And so, you know, so we were kind of officially engaged when he left on his mission and we wrote back and forth and, and then um, right before so he you, came home. From, you served in, in the Navy. 
Yes. Um, now, this makes total sense to me because I, one of my dearest friends um, also is, is, was a Marine um, and she has that same, I, I can now recognise that same steely, determined focus. I, 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 it totally makes sense that you oh, served so, in the Navy. Yeah, so I, I can see that. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. so now he's returned from his mission. So he was he was just about to come home and I said to him, um, look, I have I can come home for 30 days. I can take a 30 day leave um, so we, I can come home. We can date for 30 days, but then I'm going back to Japan or we could get married. <laughs> and he was like, OK, so that was my that was my romantic proposal. <laughs> OK, so anyway, it was funny because his mission president actually wanted him to extend his mission and he was going to because that's the type of person he is you know he's just a total enneagram to service people pleaser and so he was going to do it and it took the mission president's wife to go elder steelman aren't you engaged to get married and he was like yeah and he's like well then maybe you should go home and so he was like okay. so yeah. <laughs> seriously again this is why the women should be running the church because she was able to sit back and go Okay, young man, let me explain how this works, you know. So speaking of Brad Wilcox, I mean, I love that, you know, the women, we're we're all we all got it, right? We all already know how it works, and the men have no clue, so they need the priesthood. So in the meantime, but let's put those people who don't know what they're doing in charge and the people that do know what they're doing, which is Anyway, like bar, plan to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we got married. We have six children. Um, my oldest is um, I can't even remember how old he is now. He was born in 76. I don't know how old he is, 45, 46, something like that. He'll be 46 in June. And then my youngest is 36. So for 10 years of my life, I was pregnant and nursing and wow. babies and and it's so funny because I was in an event at one time and these young girls, it was a fashion show and these young girls were modeling. And this one lady leaned over to me and she said, um, remember those fun college days when we could all wear bikinis? And I said, no, I don't. <laughs> I was pregnant from the time I was 22 until I was 32. So there were no college bikini days for me. So, yeah. I but our um, we have four boys and two girls and our youngest son is so funny because I had my first three children at a naturopath clinic, um, natural childbirth. I was determined to have a natural childbirth. So I had them all at this clinic, a birthing clinic. And then when I was pregnant with my sixth, um, I started hemorrhaging when I went into labor. And so they took me, I went into the emergency room and they said, we're going to have to do an emergency cesarean because they didn't know why I was hemorrhaging. And so I went from natural childbirth to a cesarean, my last one. And he was born with what they call a, a diaphragmatic hernia. So he had a hole in his diaphragm and his intestines had slipped through that hole and they were laying in the chest cavity. And so he only had one lung that was developed and the other lung was just a little lung bud. And so he was immediately taken to Oregon Health Science University Hospital and um, there just happened to be two uh, very well-renowned um, diaphragmatic hernia specialists at the hospital. And they did, they did the surgery, they closed the hole, they put the intestines back where they belonged. 
And then he was in the hospital for about a month. And then um, right before he came home, they did an uh, EEG. And they they told me that he had brain damage and was at a very high risk of having cerebral palsy. Uh, But they don't know because the brain is amazing and people can sometimes reroute and go through other areas. And so they, they, you know, but I, I just remember thinking, um, I don't do cerebral palsy. I, I have five healthy children. I, we have no, I have no members of my family that are disabled in any way. None of my cousins. Um, I, you know, they didn't really, they didn't have the inclusion programs that they have now. So people that had disabilities were not included in the school system. So it just wasn't anything that I was familiar with. Um, or I didn't have any kind of model or, or anything to go off of. So, um, and because of that, in a way it was a good thing because of that, I didn't know what to expect or how life should be with a disabled child. And so I just kind of thought, okay, whatever, we'll just do what we do. I'll, you know, and we just kind of carried on. And, but, um, it was quite evident that he had a lot of, um, problems. He had a, a really hard, he couldn't swallow. He had a, you know, his suck reflex was off. So feeding him was very difficult. And um, I had, I, I don't have a lot of respect for the medical field. And the reason is because I would take him to a lung specialist on one day and the lung specialist would say, you know what, treat him like a regular child. His lungs are developing just fine. He's going to be great. And then I would take him to my pediatrician and he would say, uh, don't take him out. Don't take him to church or any other. Don't take him to a store. Stay inside. Uh, in fact, when you come to our office, we want you to come through the back waiting room. And then I would, you know, go to the neurologist and they would say, we don't really know. Um, but, you know, and so it's kind of like I just have to wing this by myself. On, on top of the fact that you are watching your child grow, you've had a really traumatic experience that birth experience isn't what you would you you were prepared for it's I mean how how were you coping well like I said you know I I loved being pregnant I loved you know I I I certainly probably would I don't know it's hard to say nobody can Mm -hmm. tell what how they would react but I don't I wanted a lot of children I came from a family where I had an older brother that was three years older I had a half brother that was eight years younger and I love babies and I really wanted a large family. And I don't know how much of that was just the influence of the church telling me that large families were great and, and, and blowing the, you know, the larger your family, the bigger your mansion will be in the celestial kingdom type mentality. Uh, I don't know how, I don't know if that was part of my desire to have a large family Um, But I loved, I loved my puppies, just having these puppies, you know. Um, But those darn puppies grow up. And by the time my youngest was born, my oldest was nine. And nine, I think, is when they start, they're not quite as cute as they were before because they start talking back, (laughs) you know. How how old is your your babe, Alana? She's almost nine. Yeah, I mean, they start. (laughs) Well, I hear you preach it. Yeah, laying out their clothes for them and telling them what you're going to do. And they start going, I don't want it. And you're like, wait, what? No, that's not how this works. Mommy's in charge of all this, you know? Um, So 
and he has a lot of issues himself. He has attention deficit hyperactive disorder. So, you know, I've got a baby on one hip and then I've got the kindergarten teacher calling me and saying he's kicking everybody on the playground. And, or we, this was the best part. We had, um, I can't even remember how old TJ was, but um, we had the school call and they said, um, your son's out on the playground and he won't come in the school. And I was like, what do you mean he won't come in? And they're like, well, he, he's sitting on the on the swings and he won't come in to the school. And I'm like, are there any adults over there? Go and grab him and bring him into the school. Well, they can't do that now. You know, legally, they can't do that now. So my husband, as I have a new baby, and, and my husband has to get off work, drive over to the elementary school and say, get your butt into the school. And, you know, but that, and so that's the way it was. So that's, I both hands, I have bookends. I have this one that was causing trouble all the time and this one who was physically giving me trouble all the time. And so day gone, those four kids in the middle, they just kind of had to wing it, you know. Oh, <laughs> they were they were they're great. I mean, all the kids have turned out great, but it's been difficult. You know, he he um he struggled eating. He um lots of doctor's appointments, but my saving grace was when he was three years old, he qualified for a preschool program. And there a bus would come and pick him up, take him to this tri-county preschool. And then he was there like regular school hours from like 7.30 in the morning till 3.30 in the afternoon. So when he was three, then I, I could finally go back to some kind of like, I could go over to the school and help out with my other kids or... <laughs> I could go exercise or go out to lunch with my friends and stuff like that. So he, you know, I don't know what they do in um, the United Kingdom, but um, in in America, people with disabilities can stay in the school system until they're 21. So from the time he was three until he was almost 21, a school bus, you know, he was on the same school hours as my other kids. So I had this, these you know, five or six hours during the day that I could pretend like I was, I had a normal family and normal, you know, but um, he, we moved from the state of Oregon to the state of Washington um, in September of his 21st year. And then because he only, there was only a few months left in the school system, they said, okay, he's done. So he was 21 and we had just moved and I was kind of looking at him and he was looking at me and I was like, and he would wake up every morning and he would say, bus, 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 because he loved to go to school. And I just had to say, I'm sorry, babe, there's, there's no more bus. There's no, you know, you're, you're hanging out with me now. And he got mad. I mean, he, he's nonverbal. He doesn't speak, but he would stiffen up in his wheelchair and he would go, oh, oh, you know, because he went to school with his brothers and sisters. I mean, he was in the high school with his brothers and sisters. And then because of that, their peers would include him in and high five him during the day. And he loved going to school. And so it was it was really Donnell says I'm in Washington state. Um, it was hard. It was really hard. And it it became harder because this um, oldest, the oldest child that I spoke of, um, he got married. Uh, the the woman that he married has some issues. Who knows what they are? But she had had a, uh, she was married before and had a child. Uh, she had abandoned that child. 
Um, and that child lived with his father. And then when my oldest grandson was eight months old, she abandoned them. Mm -hmm. And so he was left with my son who had a job. So guess, you know, so grandma. here comes grandma. So now I'm raising an eight month old. Um, so it's just, you know, it's, it's been interesting. And what happened because of that was um, I started to build up a lot of resentment towards my husband, towards, um, I don't know, it, it, when, you, when you have a lot of resentment, you just kind of turn into a negative person. And so anytime I would hear anybody complain about anything, I was like, oh, you know, it's too bad, you know, and I, I lost a lot of empathy. And I, I don't like that. I don't like that. That's instead of, instead of it turning my heart the other way, when my kids were all little and I was overwhelmed, I became very bitter and resentful because my husband has always served in high leadership in the church. So he went from being an assistant to the president on his mission. He came home from his mission. We went back to Japan and he was put in the branch presidency at 22 years old. So, so I, from the time that we were married, I was sitting in those pews by myself and he went from that into bishopric callings, stake presidency callings. Um, plus he had a job. And so he worked 16 hours a day with his job. Then he would go do his home teaching. Then he would serve in some kind of church calling. And, um, I'll never forget right before we retired, um, we were sitting, I was sitting in, in, uh, in the chapel. My husband was sitting on the stand, of course. And I was sitting there with my grandson and my, my son in a wheelchair and the stake president was visiting and he stood up and he said, um, you know, I look out and I think, doggone it. If TJ Steelman can come here every Sunday, I don't have any excuse for not being here every Sunday. And I thought, how do you think TJ Steelman gets here? I mean, completely invisible. I was completely invisible in this whole operation. And I, I just had so much resentment that when I started hearing the truths about how uh, of the church and especially with Joseph Smith and Emma, because I had read uh, Mormon Enigma in the 80s. And I just remember reading about what Emma Smith did, buried her babies carried babies, you know, across when they're moving from Kirkland to Nauvoo, was pregnant when Joseph Smith was killed, um, trying to run the, 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 the home as a hotel, feeding other people, making quilts to try to get money, trying to be a good supportive wife. And I just related, I related to her. I thought, why don't we hear about Emma? Nobody talks about Emma and what that woman did for the res restoration of whatever supposed restoration of this gospel that God put in. Nobody talks about what these women did. And so, so I want to ask you a couple of questions. And, yes. and Emma is a great place to, to come in to do that. We want to know what Emma did. We want to know what, what you did. So you're, a, you're an active Mormon. Your whole family are going to church every Sunday despite all of the reasons that you have um, to be too tired to get there, all, all, you know, against all the odds, you get to church. Um, you are, you, you mentioned bitter 
resentful, negative. Mormon women aren't supposed to feel. That's not a welcome feeling when you're in Relief Society or uh, across the sacrament table. How do you get to feel like that? Because motherhood is wonderful. We receive all of these supportive messages about motherhood in the church. How was it different for you when you became a carer for your child as well as their mother? Well, like I said, I I fed into that and I would have easily had eight children if I would not have had one that was disabled yeah. because I I felt like the the you know, the call when you're when you're kneeling at that altar and you're told to multiply and replenish the earth and the f- stories, I mean I was there when Spencer Kimball was a prophet. I remember the stories of how he would go into the homes And there would be this humble woman with an apron on and freshly baked bread. And the home was clean, but it was modest. And there were 10 children who turned their kitchen chairs around and knelt for their blessing on the food before they all sat down to prepare. And just as they were sitting down, the husband walks in from a stake presidency meeting. This is what I heard over the pulpit. So until I had a disabled child, I was eating that up and I was like, you got it. You got it. You know, you want, you want 10 children. I can pop out those babies. I don't even have an epidural. I am popping out these babies. I am on my way to the celestial kingdom. You know, my husband's in the stake presidency and I'm having another baby 15 months after my last baby was born. You know, I am going to do it. And I was, I just, I just, you know, dressed up those kids as cute as I could get them. And we all went to church and I just was playing the role and it's funny because when you listen to people that leave cults, um, like we, my husband and I, can I just tell you, I have a TBM husband who has attended every Thrive event that we can go to together. That's how to do it. Yes. That's what's amazing. And the great thing is when I, when I resigned my uh, sidebar here, when I resigned my membership, I didn't tell him that I had done it because I have listened to all the Mormon stories and I had read that if you resign your membership, it can take 90 days. It, you know, but if you go to the bishop, it'll happen sooner. Well, I didn't want to go, Elena, like kind of what you were saying and Jane, I know you just mentioned something, but I didn't want to give a man any kind of authority to take away my membership. If I was going to leave the church, I'm going to do it on my own. And you don't get to tell me whether I can be a member or not a member. So I chose to resign myself. So I didn't, I hadn't said anything to him. Well, lo and behold, it only took 30 days and I hadn't had a chance to tell him yet. And he um, went to church and the bishop, um, again, thank heavens for COVID because I have a disabled child. So even when they started meeting again, I'm like, oh, I can't go. Sorry. You know, (laughs) I'd love to, but I can't, you know, I have this medically fragile child. So uh, yeah, he and I are going to keep back. (laughs) So my husband was at church and the bishop came up to him and said, um, oh, I got the paperwork for Renee's resignation. He was like, what? (laughs) And I was like, oh my gosh. So he was a little upset. um, But this is the way a man who loves his family handles it. He said to the bishop, 
I need to talk to somebody. Is there somebody you can recommend that I can talk to? And the bishop gave him the name of a counselor that he had sent a lot of people to in the ward. And I happened to know who she was because I have a really good friend who uh, who's going through a divorce and she had been talking about her and she sounded like an amazing counselor. Um, and so he ended up on his own making an appointment and going and talking to her. I didn't even know that he had done this. Uh. And this woman is um, she's about my age. And she's still active, um, but she's very progressive. And so she was able to say to him, do you love your wife or do you love the, do you love her because she's a member of the church or do you love her? And he said, I love her. And she said, okay, well then let's start talking about you and her and not, and what you have and the wonderful things about your marriage that have nothing to do with the church. Like you have these six wonderful children. You, you're retired now. You live in, in a state where there's sunshine. Why on earth would you dissolve a marriage over something like a difference in religion? And he was like, oh, okay. All right. Oh, so that is so him. And now at this point, I feel like you know him. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I that's... That. Because yeah. parents of married um, or, or partnerships um, of disabled children, parents of disabled children, statistically don't make it. That's so right. So if you add into that the fact that you have this massive amount of, um, well, it's, there is no attention there. There's a, you know, a, a sort of pulling away from something to somewhere else. Right. Um, right. Statistically, you guys didn't stand a chance so the fact that he is so willing to, you know, just go for it, just just start making things happen, put the, putting the work in, that's beautiful. Yeah. But let, and, and let me tell you, Jane, it, I don't know. I mean, who knows? Who knows? Because every marriage has its ups and downs. And, you know, one of the other problems that the church has is the false teaching that David O. McKay never had a crossword with his wife. Uh, that, uh, you know, the prophet never argues with his wife, that Emma always went along with everything Joseph Smith wanted, supported him. They never know. go to bed on an angry word. They never go to sleep yeah. on an angry word. So that's, I remember yeah. hearing that from my parents and things, and I'm like, come on, that's not real yeah. life. Yeah, and, and the resentment that I had towards his devotion to his religion, even before I was questioning the truth of the religion or not, um, we had a lot of fights. And there were a lot of there were a few times when I took off and said, look, if I'm going to take care of these kids by myself, then I'm going to do it by myself because you're just another kid I have to take care yeah, of. You're just somebody else causing stress in my life. So, you know, and I resented the fact that he got to get up every day. He got to get up every Sunday and shower and get himself cute and tie his little tie and walk out the door. That was it. And I had six kids and one of them was in a wheelchair. And when he was born, my husband was in the state presidency and we were living in Portland at the time. We were living in a downtown ward, which struggled because a lot of times these urban wards, you know, were right in the middle of downtown and there was a lot of problems going on. And, and um, so, and the state president that we had was all wrapped up in himself. And so even though I'm up in the, I'm in one hospital, my baby's in another hospital, my husband's going to every stinking meeting he was supposed to go to. And it would, and, and never even crossed anybody's mind that that's not where he should be, that maybe he should be in the hospital with mm. his wife. 
And so I had a lot of resentment and, but you know, one of the clinkers about having a large family with a wife that doesn't have any job skills. I mean, I was a photographer in the Navy. That's not going to get me anywhere, you know? So it's not even like I learned a job skill even in the military, you know? Yeah. Um, Can I just but, ask you a quick question? Just uh -huh. keep in mind, just when you're talking there about, you know, you were resentful, you know, that he was at all the meetings and things. I'm just wondering, did that have any impact on your children? Like, have they voiced anything? Because I just, I've mentioned this before about, you know, my brother especially, who is very resentful to the church. He's been out for a long, long time, but he's quite resentful because of the time his dad was away from him because of being a bishop, church meetings, things. So I'm just curious to see, like, did that have any effect on your children or were, were they okay? You know, you know, you know why it didn't is because um, my husband really modeled what a good provider is. Okay. And so, and my son is working my, when my husband sold the company, my husband, my son works there at the company. And so he's kind of doing the same thing his dad did. And so what my husband modeled was that, you know, even though you just got home from work and you just fell into bed and you've just put in a 12 hour day, you just got a phone call that there was a train wreck and they need a crane and you, you get out of bed and that's what you do. Okay. And so they they love and respect him for his work outside of the church because um, it was construction. It was a very manly job. And so um, my second son wanted nothing to do with construction, but he's got that work ethic. So yeah. I think it all depends on what maybe they do for a living or, you know, if their job is based around the church you know education system or something i don't know who knows why yeah. but no it that our kids they my husband is such a good man instinctively outside of the church yeah that my daughters knew what to look for in a husband like they my, i remember mm -hmm. my daughter coming home one time and saying gosh mom i went over to baskin and robbins where my girlfriend was working and some guy was really rude to her and her dad was sitting right there and didn't say anything. And man, I told her if my dad would have been there, he would have reached over that counter and grabbed that guy, you know? So that's, that's how my girls thought about their dad. And that's what my boys thought about their dad. So it didn't affect, it didn't affect them at all. And I think because I am Jane, I am an independent person. It didn't stop me from doing, I mean, it's like, you guys want to go to, you know, Sun River, Oregon, dad's got a meeting. We're getting in the car. We're going to go camping or whatever. So I didn't wait for him to do life. And I think yeah. that's a, a lot of times I hear people say, well, I can't, I can't do that. My husband's not home. And I'm like, even better reason to go do that, <laughs> you know? So, so. I, I want to come back to Emma again for a moment. Um, yeah. Why don't we hear more about Emma? And I, I think there's a really good reason. So we're now speaking more positively about Emma, but we can't turn Emma into a super mother, a superhero, a superwoman. Um, right. Emma is complicated and messy. And although in recent years, again, we see that need to cram Emma into the superwoman, you know, poor Emma yeah. and all her trials thing, yeah. which absolutely right. But also, you know, it's so much more complicated than that. Yeah. How do you, how, how do you, how did you cope? Because 
society it's not even just a church thing has a need to make you now and your role as a mother but especially as a as a mother of a child with additional needs to be super mum yeah how did you cope with that you know and that is a double-edged sword as you say because the more um that it looks as though you're a superwoman that you're handling it the less the less people accept it as a trial you know it's like because i showed up every sunday because i had six children all dressed and in the pews uh it was like well then it's no big deal right i mean sister stillman doesn't have a problem with having a disabled child what's your problem you know and it's just like well sister stillman's really pissed off and her and her kids like I, I remember, I remember my my second son saying, um, "Gosh, mommy, why are you so mean at home?" And then you get to church and you turn so nice. That made you me know? chuckle when I listened to an episode on Sunstone because I'm like, "How yeah. true is that?" Like yeah. the whole, at the home, whole you know, like I admit it. Like some, like all the sweetness you've seen there with Daisy isn't always the case. Because sometimes I'm like, "You just be quiet, just that," you know. And sometimes I've done it on the podcast for getting one. You go to church, it's all oh, airy fairy. Oh, how, how are you? And it's yeah. so true. So, I, that really yeah. made me chuckle, and I really related to that as well when you said that. Yeah, it's, it's really true. And also, I, I also listened to a podcast, and I'm glad you brought that up, Jane, because it, it opened up. I mean, I read Mormon Enigma, and then I also, because I had absolutely, because the, they don't teach any truth in history. So, I didn't know that Brigham Young had silenced her. And I didn't know that Brigham Young had basically forbade anyone to speak her name when they got out to Utah. I didn't know that that Brigham Young had canceled the Relief Society the minute he could. Um, so, but then, like you say, I've heard other people say, you know, she had to be complicit in this. And she had to be, um, you know, she was married to the prophet. Before, you know, 1970 or late 60s, when the women got the vote, the only authority that women had was the level of authority that their husband had. So a lot of the women who agreed to polygamy for Brigham Young and Joseph Smith or Heber Kimball or any of these people that had authority was because it gave them a position in the hierarchy. And that's the only way women could gain a position in the hierarchy was through their husband's status. And so I think... Her son, you know, I mean, obviously there was a, a not a lot of love between her and Brigham Young, but she also, and I would do this too as a mother, she felt as though her son should take over the leadership of the church. And so she's like, I'm not going out to Utah. I'm staying right here and we're going to continue this truth, you know? So I, um, yeah, who knows? We'll never get the full story. But I, I saw so when I heard that person say, you know, she probably was complicit in some of it. And I thought, you know, even the, you know how everybody quotes, he would, he would be translating the book of Mormon and then he would leave the room and have dinner and come back and he would pick up right where he left off. Is that true? Or is that just part of the story? I don't know. No. Nobody was there. So we don't really know, but, um, I we do. do have a messy, complicated Emma and messy, complicated women are yeah. not what we like to have as role models. And, you know, the, the other, I think, really important thing to keep in mind is, you know, we're, we're having a chuckle about being real women. And if I have to, you know, scold or discipline a child 
or maybe even if it's a discussion I need to have with my husband, the whole world does not have a right to the insights into the workings of my, um, you know, relationship or how that looks. Of course, we're going to go out and things are going to look great and we we yeah. smile because that's what we do. And, right. and, you know, we, we have this tendency, <coughs> I think, in church to assume that we are entitled to maybe be more sort of enmeshed in each other's lives. Um, you know, we, we don't see any signs of, of um, you know, Sister Steelman, you can help you. Uh, did you yeah. leave a gap that needed filled? Does it, you know, were, were you showing up to church on a Sunday crying? Unless yeah. we see that, is, the, is there a problem? Yeah, right. Yeah. But I think I think for me, <clears throat> obviously being a independent parent, as I say, you know, um, it's like I've said before, you know, you go onto Facebook or, you know, any social media and you see this, perfect family you know who are loving life and out in all the adventures and everything looks so perfect so it, it tends to make me then look at my life and think I'm so rubbish like yeah. I don't do this with my daughter like I'm shouting at her a lot or you know and so I think along with that at church like I think and I'm not saying like I don't want social media to be all oh what a day I've had oh the kids are awful oh you know but I just yeah. think every once in a while it would be good to see the real life because it allows you then to feel yeah right everyone gets it they get parent is hard whether you're a single parent whether you're a parent with a husband because you know a lot of women in the church feel that have even having husbands they feel they're doing it alone because the years ago obviously the the men were so consumed by church so they felt they were going it alone anyway so sometimes i think it's just well, how the picture's painted it makes you feel a little inadequate as a parent sometimes let me respectfully suggest um and I see this coming up a lot with subjects like miscarriage, uh, mm. especially all sorts of all sorts of specifically women's trauma too. Let me respectfully suggest that those messages of complexity and pain they do exist. They are on social media. People do cry out for help, and they do it all the bloody time. We talk about how things are really hard as parents. Sometimes it's easier not to see it now I can, I can i can tell you from sort of my own point of view if i hear a story of one more person comparing themselves to any experience that i've had in that day it makes me furious because you are not me and yeah. uh, you know just just don't i know you think you're trying to be helpful but just don't um if you and i and i think that's that's a kind of what i'm getting at about church and specifically relief society there we're looking for you know everyone to be well and everyone to be happy and the visiting tea and I'm I'm sorry I'm gonna keep calling it visiting teacher and home I know I know the banana and apple. Yeah. Um yeah. and it helps me you know separate the male from the female ministry but when we're we're talking about being friends to each other and looking out for each other and what a church community should look like I don't need more friends. I need people to actually pitch up consistently and help me. If you're going to be my visiting teacher, I would like you to be my visiting teacher. Yeah. Does that make sense? Um, something more different than a friend. Yeah. Anyway, Renee, I want to ask you more. Um, tell me what church was like for you in Relief Society. How how did, did was was church a supportive place? Did was it was it good for your family to be in church or was it? Uh, I can't speak for my family because, um, like I said, we have four boys. The three, um, the th 
obviously the last one is disabled and so that's whatever the other three boys are not active in the church the three boys did not serve a mission um so you know that kind of set a um a standard for um i remember one time my 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 oldest one we never really thought would serve a mission because like i said he has he has his own stuff going on and that wasn't anything that we expected out of him you know um, but the second son has a lot of my husband's personality traits. So he's very obedient. He follows the rules. Um, he does what he's told to do. Um, and he's not a, uh, he's not going to rebel against anything. So we really thought he, he graduated from high school and went to Oregon state for one year. And we said, okay, you can go to Oregon state, but we really want you to attend church and institute and whatnot. And he wasn't doing that. So then as good Mormon parents, we said to him, okay, well, if you're not going to go to church, then we would like for you to transfer to BYU. And, and if you don't want to do that, you don't have to, but we're not going to pay for college anymore. And so he was like mad. And I look, I, I, you guys, I look back on that now. <laughs> I, I had no idea how the college system worked. I mean, my husband never went to college. I never went to college. We just worked, you know, we were that generation, the boomers that just worked, you know. And so I had no idea the difference between a quarterly system, uh, you know, a, the, a term system, um, how credits transferred, a religious college versus a state college. I had no idea. So this kid transfers to BYU. He loses a year of credits. He has to, he was basically in an international business program at Oregon State. He's now in a psychology program at BYU because that's the only thing that's going to get him out of there. And so he, you know, we make him go to BYU. And of course he finds, you can find your tribe wherever you're at, right? So he finds a group of young men who aren't particularly active in the church, but he takes his religious classes. He does everything he's supposed to do because he doesn't want to get kicked out. And he graduates, he walks across the stage, his hair is kind of sticking out of his cap. And I'm like, Preston, they're not gonna let you graduate if you don't cut your hair. He's like, whatever. And so he graduates, never, oh, never crossed the threshold of a church again. He had stopped, he had stopped believing when he, and this is the same son that called me out on being hypocritical. <laughs> he also saw the hypocrites at church. He saw the hypocrites at his high school. He saw the boys blessing the sacrament meeting and he knew what they were doing at school. And he saw those same young men being put in positions of authority in the priest quorum, in the teacher's quorum, in the deacon's quorum. And he was obeying all the rules, but because his last name wasn't Smith and his daddy wasn't the stake president, he wasn't ever, ever put in a position of authority. He was never a deacon's a priest. And he was probably the, you know, the child at three years old stood up in primary and gave a talk, complete poetry. He, at three years old, he recited this whole poem. People stood up at little kids stood up and applauded. It was such an amazing talk. This is an amazing, amazing boy. He was never recognized at church. So gone you know i and, want to shout out to the comment that's just come in there about you know the youth <clears throat> learn to lie um i i was a convert my teenage son was a convert and um i, I remember he he used to try to tell me 
about the hypocrisy that he was seeing mm-hmm. and I genuinely thought I was doing the right thing um you know I was talking about how you know people are human and we have a standard in church and when they fall short of that standard and blah 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 and I didn't hear him I didn't hear the seriousness of what he was trying to tell me um and and he you know in a tiny ward where there are there are no one to fill callings you know he he had callings but they meant nothing to him because he could he 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 just saw that um he felt like it was just to sort of tick boxes and to look the part and that comment i think it's it's actually given voice to something that i i think that's exactly it it's um he could see that youth are being trained in not being honest. Oh, there's me doing the British thing. Lie. I can't say the word lie. Just briefly, obviously not not to make it about me, but that, that happened to me just just quickly. Like, yeah. In one of our youth temple trips, um, I can't remember for what reason, but this year, because when I was younger, there was a lot more youth in the church. It was very restricted within the sake how many numbers. There was only so many from each ward could go. We had quite a big youth when I was in youth, and without mentioning names, there was this girl who I knew was doing things she shouldn't have been to go to the temple. And here was me, who was trying my best in abiding. And so I go for the temple, the temple recommend interviews. And I know bishops can only go based on what people tell them, but she got to go and I didn't. And I remember I was so upset because I'm like, I know that I'm doing the things I need to do and she's not, and she's went in and lied. But looking at it as an adult now, you can see possibly why. Because I then, as I went on older, began to realise, like, out of fear, like, I can't go in there and tell them that I'm doing this but I remember feeling at the time like I'm really upset and, and furious that and, and I was one of a really good friends at the time and I said to her why did you lie you know I didn't get to go and you did but you're you know and, and it isn't and it's because of I think for me I remember anyway fear comes into it a lot because you're sinning and you know that that fear of what they're going to do to you or what they're going to say or the shame and so sometimes you do tend to not tell the truth I guess Absolutely. I, I, in fact, this is kind of probably off the subject, but um, my husband, one day he said to me, um, what do you tell the stake president when he asks you if you wear your garments day and night? And I said, I say, yes. He goes, that doesn't bother you. And I said, no, because I have a handicapped child. And I said, what happened was when he was, um, he was probably about two and he he, I, I got up three or four times a night to, if he happened to roll over by accident, I would have to go and roll him back because he only sleeps on his stomach. I don't know why, but that's his thing. He only sleeps on his stomach. So every time he would accidentally roll over as a child, I, he would cry and I would get up. And I said, you know, I have older kids now. My oldest is nine and 10. I can't be running around in my garments. So, and I'm also not layering up before I go to bed. So if I'm going to start wearing pajamas, I'm not going to wear my garments. So I'm just going to wear my pajamas so that when I get up in the middle of the night or I get up to fix breakfast for my kids, I have on modest clothing to be around my boys and stuff. And so I said, that's a very simple thing. Uh, I don't know. I'm sound asleep. I don't think I'm sinning when I'm sleeping. So I feel okay answering yes. But he is such an obedient person. He was like, but that's a lie. And I'm like, yeah, but I feel good about it. So I'm just telling you, you know. Oh, this is such a gene. We've had many discussions about this, haven't we? That is a lie. Okay, first of all, um, 
we we had an incident in Parliament last was it last week where um, a Scottish person, funnily enough, was trying to say our Prime Minister lied. Now this is not about politics, anything like that. This is the fact that in Parliament you're not allowed to say that someone lied. What you can say is that someone unwittingly misled you. And when when that was happening, I just thought it was the funniest thing because that's the only terminology that I can, I can't say. Someone lies. That's just no. Not how you, you didn't mean it. Did you? You did. Yeah. But um, again, isn't it up to you how you wear it? It's, it's, you no, know, it's your because problem. you you covenanted to it day and night. So it's, it's no, but did we? You. But did we? Did we? We were authorised to wear it night and day, but. If there are reasons why I would not wait, I mean, I, I've worn it day and night for my whole life. That doesn't mean that I have to explain the times that I didn't wear it when I was swimming, that I didn't wear it when yeah. I was, um, you know, having sex, that I, I <laughs> it was the, the menstrual blood was so inconvenient that just, you know, nothing was going to be happening. Also, yeah. you know, the, the times that we, I, I love that as women, we can, we can just get it said, you know, um, all of the the pain uh, you know sort of medically physically that happens because of garments um yeah there Amen. are a whole load of reasons why not wearing it i still feel like i'm keeping my covenant to wear it through my whole life if i'm wearing it through my i do life. too i just I don't have to explain the details to you you know yeah and i think that's the interesting part about my whole deconstruction was there were so many things that I I feel like I could look at and go, yeah, that's not true. You know, yeah. like, yes. like I remember when, uh, like you said, and I said this to my husband, and this is why another reason why men shouldn't be in charge or that they don't, it's not that they can't be in charge, but you know, we have, we have 12 apostles, six of them could be women, six of them could be men, you know, whether you have the priesthood or not, it's an administrative calling. Okay. It's not, we're not laying hands on anybody. It's an administrative calling. But I said to my husband, you don't, like I said, have you ever nursed a baby when milk is coming out of your breast and you're having your period and you're going through menopause and you have yeast infections and you have, you know, bladder, you have all, men don't do that. You don't understand what it's like to live in a woman's, a female body. So, and he just, he would just shrug his shoulders and go, but that's the rules. Well, you know? Yeah, well, see, this is the thing. If it's the rules to you, though, I mean, this is why church. But I never felt guilty, you know, because I knew that that wasn't right. I never felt guilty. And and that's the key. Um, Alana's father is is a nurse and has served as a bishopric and and is is counsellor in the bishopric for loads of times. And I remember one of the the last times and he had got, your dad had got to that point on the the questions list with me. And I'm like, I'm a woman. Do you need me to tell you? And he's like, you don't need to tell me. (laughs) That was it. Yeah, well, because he got it. He's like, yeah, I totally, totally. I I get exactly what you mean. So, and, and that's what we need, a little bit of realness. Um, yes, Donnell, we need to tell them breast milk. Yes, we need to tell them <laughs> menstrual blood. Um, okay. What the, so for, for my son, 
the primary programme was exceptional. We had a primary president when we first started attending church who was very, very structured. A lot of parents didn't really like that. But for our child, this was wonderful. Um, And that structure was perfect. Going from there into the youth programme was a car crash because there was no structure. And uh, within a matter of months, he wasn't attending. Um, it was felt that he didn't need to attend because he's made it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Could you talk to me a little bit about your experience with um, with the church programs and your and your child? You know, that's the thing too. When when people talk about bishopric roulette, um, it's ward roulette. It really is um, because we when he was a baby. Um, you know, we were living out in kind of a, a more rural area. The ward loved him. Everybody loved him. He was tiny. You know, he's, he stayed very little, you know, for a long time. Um, then we moved, uh, back into the suburbs and the ward just loved him, just scooped him up. And he loved primary. He would sit in the back of the room in his wheelchair and listen to the kids sing. Mm -hmm. He loved it. And so same thing when he turned 12, he doesn't hold the priesthood. He's never been baptized. You know, um, I said, yeah, can he just stay in primary? He's not hurting anybody. He's just sitting in the back in his wheelchair. And she said, absolutely. And so one of the counselors, I'll never, I mean, Jennifer Patton, she would stand back there and rub his head and he would sing with the children. And he stayed in primary until we moved. And when we moved from Oregon to Washington, the person who was the primary president at the time was very uppity, very, um, she had a good last name. She had some heritage behind her and uh, absolutely not. There's no reason for him to be in primary. He's not a primary age child. And um, so it kind of took her leaving. And I would try to take him into to Relief Society. Have you ever tried to push a wheelchair into a Relief Society room? There's no room for wheel. Let's talk about the fact that none of these buildings are set up for people with disabilities. Okay. So let's, besides not having a nursing room for mothers, we also don't, we're not set up for disabilities at all. So um, you can't get them through the door. There's no, the chairs are all right there lined up against the door. You can't get them in. Sometimes my husband would, would take him, but I got mad because, you know, he would say, I'll take him, I'll take him. So you can go to Relief Society. And so I would come out, I would walk out of Relief Society and instead of putting him in, um, when he was finally, gosh, he was probably in his thirties, uh, the priests would say, Hey, I'll, let me take TJ. I'll, I'll take TJ and we'll go into the priest quorum. And, um, but my husband being the person who's always, you know, he'd say, no, 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 I don't don't want to bother them. I don't want to inconvenience anybody else. So I'll just stand out here in the hallway with him. And I would walk out and I would see him standing in the hallway and I'd say, he wanted to go in the quorum with those boys. He wanted to be with his peers and you stopped him because you thought he was going to disrupt the, and so those boys were more important than your boy. That's where I would get in the, the people pleasing stuff, you know, oh, I would get so mad. So I stood out in the, I lived in the foyer. I, I, there needs to be an entire thing about the women in the foyer. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the truth. Uh, The spirit is in the foyer just as much as is in the classes. We've had many great discussions in the foyer, haven't we, Jim? 
the four yeah. years where healing happens. Yes, and absolutely. After That's that where relief anxiety is really going on is in the four years. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Nothing in that little room with all the little head games going on. Exactly. <laughs> um, when, so Ronan really wanted to be with his peers as he could see people moving up into young men's. That was where he wanted to be. There was a rite of passage that he wanted to, you know, go through and experience. He didn't have a need for baptism. And our bishop was at the time actually did a sort of special, now what was it called? A, a sort of baptism as an exercise so that he got to go into the water. Um, some people showed up. It wasn't super public, but it was very special for Ronan. It was really lovely. Um, and, and it's lovely to see adaptations being made as were needed. Priesthood authority wasn't called on it. Actually, that's not true. He said, by the authority of the bishop, I command you to be clean. And he, he dunked him. It was very, very special. Aww. And he'd yeah. really prayed about that. But as I say, then we move on. When our child becomes heavier when they become more difficult to move around you can't just pop them in your hip and take them from the class if they're being disruptive if they are feeling angry if they lash out and that lashing out is no longer a, a little boy it's now a scary scary young man it's completely understandable right but what I didn't understand is that my child had expectations of the church. How could I not mm -hmm. have, have saw that he would have expectations? Mm -hmm. And so when he turned 12 and went into young men's, um, he, he went to church that Sunday and I'm so angry. You know, I just, I don't do tears. I do anger at this, at this moment in time. He really thought he was going to get to participate in mm -hmm. sacrament. He oh. sat with it. He was ready to jump up and to be oh. the person who told him no was <sighs> awful oh. because he did not have the authority. <gasps> oh, that breaks my heart. You, you know, you, you, I, I wonder, does it need said that, um, you know, that, that to have, can you imagine if it had been able to happen? What, that what would, what would Jesus like? have done? Exactly. Jesus would have taken him up there and said, let me, I will help you hold the tray. I will help you walk from aisle to aisle so that you feel included. That's what Jesus did. That's what he would have done. There, there is no Jesus in that church. I'm sorry. That's it's Joseph Smith church. It's not a Jesus. Church. I would agree. I would agree. The focus and the concern had been for the ordinance yes not for not for even even jesus wasn't mentioned but it was the <clears> ordinance <throat> and this, this sacredness and need for the ordinance to be performed in the correct way was really important so mm -hmm. even no invitation to um hold a door open to usher yeah. to yeah. Um, eventually i managed to um in the weeks to come i i was sort of very insistent that there is a role that our, that my child can perform. Can he bring the bread each week? And uh, while he, you know, Bishop was sort of saying, no, no, no. <gasps> and then eventually he sort of realized that what I was asking was actually reasonable and possible. And, oh, yes, yeah, yeah, he could do that. Um, and so that was something that he felt was important and he did for a long time until 
he just you know he couldn't be at church he just he couldn't right. be there anymore so yeah so anyway that was my detour and I apologize to talk about some of the things that I've been experiencing so I, I want to know what did, did you did you or your son have any expectations of church and what what was that sort of youth period like until he's ready to reach adulthood you know one of the, and this is the thing about when you when you said how people say oh I know what you're going through or they think they've lived your life that's one of the things that I can very easily look at and say look Every disability has its challenges and they're different. And cerebral palsy is a spectrum, just like autism is a spectrum. And our son is quite spastic, very severely physically, which in a way is a blessing because he has no control over his arms and his legs. He can't walk. He's not ambulatory at all. So I don't have to worry about him running away. I don't have to worry about him harming other people because he has no control over his his arms. Um, I don't have to worry about him saying inappropriate things because he's nonverbal. So even though physically he's hard to take care of because I have to do everything for him. Um, on the other hand, you know, I my daughter has a son that's severely autistic. He is verbal. He is ambulatory. He is potty trained. Um, but she has to worry about him running away or um, just, you know, maybe grabbing something or something like that, but or being too loud or, or, or these kind of things. He's only he's only nine. So he hasn't he hasn't had to experience that being accepted. And he's also his particular kind of autism. He would rather be by himself anyway. So I don't know if he'll ever have the desire to be included in the priest quorum. So every disability has its mm. different challenges. I mean, um, that's why it's like, I, I remember when you said that, I just thought that was, that's probably one of my highest irritants as well. I remember when my daughter, my daughter was 25 years old. She was pregnant with her second baby and her husband was a, a just had graduated from the police Academy and he was killed in a car accident. So we're sitting in her apartment and we're boxing up her apartment and the Relief Society came over to help. And this one woman stood in her kitchen and talked and talked and talked. And I remember sitting there hearing her say, I know what you're going through. My mother died. And I remember going, oh, honey, that's not the same. It's, it's, it is a trial and it's a sad thing, but it's not the same. This is a, a little, a, she has a two-year-old little girl. She's pregnant. She's all alone. That's not the same, you know? So we just cannot compare, you know, like Brene Brown says, there are no, you know, Olympic trials. There's no gold medal for this trial or this suffering, this amount of suffering. You don't get a gold medal. You're a silver, you're a bronze. Everybody has something. And that's why talks like Brad Wilcox's talk are just inflammatory because it's not, you're, that's what empathy is all about. That's what empathy is all about, is not understanding, not knowing. And I'll tell you, um, it wasn't until my son was 13. And because I'm, I am fiercely independent and I'm not saying that's a good thing because I should have asked for help. I, sh I needed help and I didn't ask for help. And that is, but people came into my life and it demanded that they help me. And thank heavens they did. And I didn't even recognize how, how amazing that was to have that. But I remember 
when he finally, because a lot of cerebral palsy kids you'll notice are usually very thin because they burn a lot of calories. Uh, you know, their bodies are constantly, since it's fastest, you know, they're constantly burning calories. So um, he was very small for his age, he was very thin for his age. So he was finally 13 years old and I couldn't pick up his wheelchair. He got a new wheelchair and it was too heavy. I used to pick him up, put him in his car seat or put a seatbelt on him and pack him with pillows. And then I would pick up his wheelchair and put it in the back of the car and then we would go someplace. Well, finally, I couldn't do that anymore. So we finally had to decide we need a vehicle that will transport a wheelchair. So we went shopping for vehicles and they are stupidly expensive. You buy the car, then you buy the accessibility things that need to be modified. The car needs to be modified. So you bought a car. If you can get a cheap used car for $25,000, you're going to put $28,000 of um, mobility equipment into the vehicle. So you've got a freaking Mercedes priced vehicle and it's a 12 year old Toyota minivan, you know, and it wasn't until we got that van and I saw what that allowed us to do because before I had a baby just like everybody else had a baby. I pushed him in a stroller. I pushed him in a thing. I didn't know that he wasn't the same as my other children. I didn't see it until he got too big for me to not treat him like a baby. And now he's a man and you can't, you know, he's not in a stroller. He's not in a car seat. That's when my eyes were opened. And that's when I was like, wow. And I watched people get their handicapped son in and out of a car or not be able to go anywhere or have to call public transportation or sit at a bus stop for two hours because the bus is late with their handicapped child. And that's when the empathy came back, the resentment stopped because I have a van and I know how blessed I, and I have a husband that didn't leave me because, you know, he didn't want to deal with this. I, I could see, oh, oh, I have, I have to give back. I have to recognize what I have and I have to give it back. And that's when the resentment kind of left and I started being more grateful and then more empathetic for the other people. And like I said, I watched my daughter with her son that has autism and because she was raised with a brother that was disabled, she pops out 501s, IEPs, therapy. It's like, yeah, absolutely. That's how we do it here. That's how, that's how this family handles it. You know, my other daughter's dealing with um, some sensory disorders, some some spectrum type issues herself. And she's like, she's calling my other daughter. Do I need a 504? Do I need an IEP? You know, it, that's what having a handicapped brother, you know, showed them and taught them. And so, you know, but yeah, I mean, stupid things that people say and things that, People in the, you know, I have that, I have that beautiful quote that Harold B. Lee, I think he was actually, I don't think he said it originally. I think, I think uh, George Albert Smith said it, but you know, that the, these spirits in the spirit world were so desperate to get a body that even though they weren't worthy, they were willing to come down and take on a body with disabilities or a color of skin. They were willing to, to be to have that horrible experience on earth just so they could have a body. And, and, and you think, Oh, but that was, you know, well, Harold B. Lee was in my lifetime. I, I remember him, you know, and I remember what, two years ago that um, president Oaks stood up and said that your, 
your place here on earth is based on your spirituality and the pre-existence. And I just said, it is freaking 2019. Did you not say, you just said that? So is that a, is that a silence truth? Just like Brad Wilcox released all these silence truths that they still believe, mm. they still teach. They're just quiet. Yeah. I'm just See, go, going on that, Jane, was it, was it a podcast or something that I was listening to and I called you and I was like quite upset because... I'd never heard of this teaching. Was it in Mormon doctrine or something? Where it was said, like, about children being wicked in the pre-earth life, and that's why they've got disabilities and things. And I just remember, after I spoke with you, I just came off the phone and I just sobbed because I thought, how dare you teach that? How dare you? And it really, really so upset me. And I thought, and this is a part of an organisation that yeah. I've lived my life in. And then they these countered that. They countered that with, no, no, you're so special you yeah. were given this child to raise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm like, really? Because I have a husband that works and we have a house and I'm healthy and all my other kids are healthy. So are you going to tell that single mom living in a, 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 a subsidized housing with her disabled child that she was so blessed that the God said, let's lay this on you too. You don't have enough going on in your life. I'm going to give you a disabled child that you can't work and take care of a disabled child too. But let's yeah. just see how you handle that. Is that really where we're going? You know, yeah. you know, there's also we totally overlook then the fact that there's you know genetic components often to disabilities. We totally overlook the fact that, um, you know, if if um, women are drinking alcohol during pregnancy, it affects the you know it's it's not a mark of righteousness. Often no. it's a mark of trauma or other sort of types of things. But I, I feel okay. I'm I'm gonna go on my high horse here for a moment. Do it. There's go. specific questions that I'm I, I want to ask in a minute, but I just feel like so Relief Society set up often teaches us to respond with em, emotion. Um, you know, to, to feel a little bit of tears if we're feeling a little bit overwhelmed. Um tears don't help. Tears don't help. What really helps is um if if you feel like you will step up and do something about it your action is required a lot more than your tears and we have expectations as mothers on behalf of our children our children have expectations and as much as the church has its faults it's uniquely positioned to be able to do something about it the handbooks give you so much um uh, if they would to, read them if they would read them if they would put it into action it, yeah. it literally keeps telling you adapt this adapt this special needs child and by the way that's not sufficient the the People, when you're when you're writing the handbook, if the last word that you have to say and how you're going to care for your disabled members of your congregation is, oh yeah, you can adapt it. I'm sorry. Can you give people something to actually work with? But but should it take reading a handbook to to have the common sense to know? Because if you don't know, someone giving you ideas will help. That's why we have handbooks to tell you how to do your damn job. And if it's not, or come to the parents to and say, what can I do that's going to help your child to have a better experience at church? That's common sense. You don't need a rule book or a handbook. No one gave me a rule book to be a parent. I just figured it out. So now, use your go. common sense and go figure it out with the parents. Yeah, Simple. so that is exactly what what to do. They, because parents will tell you. Um, there are specific <laughs> things that will be helpful. But what it requires is you to put the work in. It will require you to think differently and approach things differently. And 
in a church where we are so structured, where we're not good at doing things differently, I'm afraid it's going to have to change the way church looks. And it means that our congregations are going to look different everywhere we go. Um, My word, I want you to call a damn disability specialist. We've only been here for like 10 years. Which is in the handbook. It's in the handbook. When people have been called to, to serve, Ronan specifically, they've refused. I want yeah. you to to speak to members about the priesthood and Relief Society and whatever the hell else just to be a Christian duty. Those are some simple things you can do. But more than that, I expect you to be still and just listen. Do not try and fix us. Do not try and see us as a broken family or something that needs. Some of the worst things have been said to me when I've spoken to Relief Society presidents just about being tired, not asking for help. Have you thought of putting your son into care, into an institution? Um, Because apparently it's too uncomfortable for you to listen to me mentioning that I'm tired. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, people who wouldn't put their dogs into care, which, you know, if that's well, what Well, I'm exhausted do. all the time. Should I put Daisy into care? No well, difference. It, that's your child. To, to, be, to be blunt, to be blunt, I, I'm sorry to do this, but it is different. You know, having No, I don't know child, what you're saying. I don't mean that, but I just mean, like, you wouldn't say that to someone who didn't have a disabled child. So yeah, why I, should you just make that suggestion regardless? There are, I guess there, that's my point. You know, the, the fact that that is a road that parents can go down it requires so much that might have been something that I was thinking about and tortured about and wondering if I'm going to do and and the amount of um uh oh can you imagine the 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 conversations that we're having to have over a over a, a situation like that um and a relief society president can just throw it out as a suggestion to me being tired um you know you you have to keep in mind that the things that you are sharing your opinions on if you don't know what you're talking just please just shut up and be a friend just shut up and listen and be still in that space that is often all that's required Mm. when we're tired we just want someone to To listen and that's just talking about me, that's, you know, not even mentioning that at no point has anyone come to my child and asked, what can we do for you? Yeah. Um, well, sorry, and, they, so. and even if they do, like, then that's the other thing I hate. I hate, dis, I don't know if you guys have the, the term disabled porn over there, but yes. when people use people with disabilities to inspire us, the other people, like, look, if this guy can ski with, with two, you know, um, you know, legs that, and, or, you know, is, uh, uh, why can't I think of it now? I haven't eaten today. You know what I mean? But it's like, you don't have any excuse because this disabled person can do this, you know? So the disabled porn, they, they, that's the other extreme. Um, I've had so many people say to me, oh, your son has cerebral palsy. I have an uncle that has cerebral palsy. He plays professional golf. And I'm like, not the same, not the same, you know? Um, like I said, cerebral palsy is a spectrum and it's all different. And I went to two and a half bishops. The reason I say a half is because the last one was my husband. I went to two bishops and said in the handbook, it says you're supposed to call a specialist. Could you call someone to sit in primary with him so that I can go to relief society and not sit out in the hallway? They said, no. They said, no, because they look at me and they go, well, you're doing a fine job. You're taking care of a 
we wouldn't want to we wouldn't want to put somebody else out but could you please but also could you clean the building on Saturday? Yeah, oh, they, they, they oh, called okay. me to funnily, yeah. not as a disability specialist, because that would, you know, mean that other people were being assessed, and that would also mean that, um, you know, you would be bringing that. They would be represented in a ward council, which is the way it's supposed to be. But no, I, I get called to to teach Ronan, which is, can I just say, has been one of the privileges of my life to have mm. had that calling. But that is not good. That's enough. not the answer. That That's not, not good enough. Um, okay. Could you take care of everyone's <laughs> else's disabled child? We're not going to help you with yours, but could you take care of everybody else's? Well, okay. it's also why I know that um, I'll never be called. They've tried a few times. I'll never be called to primary because I know that the Lord will not do that to me. So if you're, you know, in the event anyone receives that revelation on my behalf, uh, you can think again because that down. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Um, talk to me then, Renee, about this. So this, this journey that you've been on, talk to me about, about church and your integrity around your religious beliefs. Well, you know, that was one of the hardest things was because um, what my son does is brings out the best in other people. I mean, I see people and if you want to find humanity, if you think the world is all, you know, completely gone and the apocalypse is happening tomorrow, you need to take somebody in a wheelchair to the mall. Mm. People are falling over themselves to open doors for me and you know, there, there, it just, he brings out the best in people. We have, I have had, I have had a, um, um, Buddhist guy stop me at the park and ask if he could say a prayer for him. I've had crazy evangelicals ask if they could pray over him. And I'm like, sure, go for it. I don't care. You I'll know. take that to the bank. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Everybody, we need all their voices, right? But, um, I mean, he really does bring, and so people at church, love him. They love him. And they'll say, oh, you know, we miss because his idea of singing is, ah, you know, as loud as he can. It's a little startling. When we, when we yeah. first move into a ward, it's a little startling, especially for the older people that have hearing aids. I get it. You know, <laughs> again, my husband was on the stand and I was sitting with him and I let him sing, right? He has every right to sing. When so, my husband was released and we moved and he's no longer on the stand and um, he took him outside. Oh, he, took him outside. Uh, he didn't want to disturb the other people. So that's the that, thing. That know? was one of my favorite Sundays was when Ronan James Child was there singing his heart out. I loved that. Yeah. Loved that. Yeah. And it didn't, it didn't disturb, you know, and even when you looked around everyone, everyone, most folk were smiling. It was yeah. making them happy. You know, it, it was just so lovely. It just, like you said, you know, like Jane will tell you, like, I love being around, you know, Ronan. I love, he just yeah. brightens my day. You know, if I'm ever feeling a bit low, if I go see Ronan, he just fixes it. He's just got that yeah. way. And he doesn't do anything specifically, yeah. but just yeah. his brightness, his outlook, it just changes yeah. everything. So I can totally relate really with that. So I, I, honestly, before COVID, the only thing that kept me going back to church was the fact that he loved church. I went to church to take him to church yeah. because he loves the singing. He loves music. He, you know, because he's nonverbal and he's cortically blind, he relies on his hearing. 
and he listens in so intently and he loves hearing the music. And so I took him to church because, you know, that's what mothers do, right? You take, you do what your kids are, what's best for your kids. Absolutely. And when COVID hit and we didn't have to go anymore. It was like, I don't have to do this anymore. And so then I started zooming for him so that he could listen to the singing. And, and so I, I, I'm to the point now where I can't even do that anymore because I just, sometimes the people that say, they say things over the pulpit. And I, I said, this is just making me angry. I, yeah. I, you know, there was a lady that got up in testimony meeting about a year ago and she's, there's a church right next to our church. And she said, you know, when I passed that other church today and I thought to myself, well, at least they're not atheists. And I was like, you just stood up and said that over the pulpit, oh, my you know, and I'm like, I can't. So now listening to zoom church, even to hear things like that. I'm like, I can't, I get my poor husband. He walks in the door and I'm like, did you hear what? And he's like, please, you know, so I, I can't even listen to that anymore, but boy, I mean, this is how he was raised. Turn on the Mormon tabernacle choir. He's in heaven. He's in yeah. heaven. He loves it. So, um, I, you know, I took him, I, you go to church because you have children, you go to church because you have grandchildren, you go to church because you're setting the example for your, you know, you don't, I don't want to be responsible for my children's apostasy that I don't, <laughs> I don't want that to be on my head. So I waited for my kids to all grow up. And then I'm like, yeah, you're, you're old enough now. Let them apostatize by themselves. And yeah, put <laughs> it on their own. And that was the thing that, you know, the, the therapist told us, she said, look, you don't have any little children in the home. You know, um, most of your family is less active anyway. Um, you're retired. And I said to my husband, look, I've done you a favor. You will never be called into another position of authority because your wife you know, resigned her membership. So I did this for you, honey, because you're retired now and you can relax. <laughs> He's like, okay. They, they just opened up the Phoenix, uh, the Mesa temple. They did some uh, renovating. And so they just opened it up again and they called him and he's the state president called him and said, uh, Brother Stillman, I'd like to talk to you about a, a temple. And he said, well, I, you know, you, you might want to know my wife's no longer a member. He goes, oh, I know. He goes, I'm just asking you to help out for the open house of the Mesa temple. <laughs> You don't have to have a wife to do that. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I'm so glad you could do something, honey. So, well, but that, yeah, so that's, that's different. That's another real worry, though. Um, you know, parents who are still caregivers yep. for their child, you're going to be called to serve a mission one day. You're going to be called, you know, when, when you're in retirement age, when you still have these kinds of responsibilities. Yeah. It's these things are fear. And you know what's really scary, Jane, is. Um, I don't know how they work it uh, in Europe, but in, uh, in at least I think it's I think it's pretty much statewide. Um, the states now will pay the parents to take care of their children. I think that must have been part of the wow. ADA Act or something like that. They're, you're called a parent provider. So um, I, you, they can either pay a caregiver to come into your home or they can pay the parent. They're going to do the same amount of work. So that was passed. The problem is my son is fed through a G-tube, which is considered a medical procedure. So the only people that are authorized to do that would be a family member or a nurse. So they don't have nurses that are going to drive out to where we live and feed him every two hours. 
So they're grateful that I'm willing to do this because there is no caregiver out there. So, so I have a, you know, a person that watches over all of this and making sure that all of this gets, I literally work. I work for an agency as a caregiver. I sign in and I sign out every day. Like I'm a caregiver. They call me. If I forget to sign out, they call me and they'll say, were you, were you working with Tony Stillman today? I said, yes, I am every day, 24 hours a day, you know, but they had to do that because there were so many people taking advantage of the system saying that they were taking care of their brother when in reality the brother was home by himself and they were out partying yeah. so because of the people who take advantage of the systems that are set up to help people with disabilities like handing out parking placards benefits everybody tries to all of a sudden you know i don't know if you guys have an area what do you have an area in scotland that is kind of known as like the retired people that are older they all go to this certain area because there's sunshine and that kind of thing. Do you guys have a place like that? They don't have um, sunshine in Scotland. Yeah, do we, we don't do sunshine. So yeah, that's yeah. The first hello. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know we moved here from the Pacific Northwest, and and um, it's. I had a couple of clients when I was doing my interior design, and they were from England, and they were like, "We want color." I'm like, "Thank you, thank you." I know we need color. Eyes are gray. There's no sun. You know, but. You know, anyway, but Scottsdale is kind of known as a retirement. It's like Florida. People retire. They go to Scottsdale because it's sunny and they can play golf every day. It's pathetic. But anyway, so um, amazing, amazing handicap placards. It's like they get handed out on their 70th birthday. Here you go. You have to, to you must need a handicap park. You just Porsche, park that little sports car and peel yourself out of it and run into Whole Foods and get your groceries and come back in. You know, why do you need a parking place? You just literally, I mean, I sat there one day and watched this older man get out of his McLaren and, uh, you know, long legs, peel himself out of the sports car, walk in very quickly into Whole Foods, go shopping, carry his bags back, put them in the back of his sports car and drive away. I'm like, okay, everybody's, everybody has a handicap now. So we all need a parking placard. So I don't have a place to park anymore with my, because I can't get him out of the car. So people take advantage of the systems that are set up to help, you know, it's rampant throughout all kinds of different systems, yeah. you know, systemic, it's systemic through all kinds of different areas. But anyway, where was I going with so that? So COVID, COVID was, uh, was a, a relief to you that you yeah. were able to take that step back. Where did that step back take you? Well, so what happened was, um, so COVID happened. We weren't going to church. I'm listening to every podcast, reading every book, every audio book I can get my hands on. And I'm learning, learning, learning. And you'll love this story. This is the best story ever. So um, my husband and I were on our way back from someplace and I got a text from our bishop and he said, I'd like to come over and talk to you. <clears throat> and I said, um, well, okay. But this was before my paperwork. I put my paperwork in. And I said, I just want you to know that I'm in the process of resigning my membership. And he said, oh, that's I'm, that's really sad to hear, but can I come over and talk to you anyway? So um, I thought, I said, is this for me or for my husband? And he goes, it's for you. So he came over, this is a brand new bishop. Our other bishop had been released and he was brand new. So he came over and he said, I want you to know I was gonna issue you this calling. And, uh, but when you told me that you were no longer a member, I thought, why did God tell me to call you to this? Because I, I was praying and 
I just, I felt so good about it. And, and he said, I finally decided that God just want, you know, Heavenly Father just wanted me to let you know that he loves you. I'm like, really? You think <laughs> I don't know that God, you think I need you to pray in your closet and cry and let me know. I know God loves me. I, I have a stronger testimony of some kind of a mother in heaven who's watching over her daughters. I still receive revelations in my, I am as a mother, you know, I am things pop into my head that I know that there is a higher power that is guiding me. And I have a stronger testimony of, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I can't, I, I don't, I'm not an atheist. I'm not an agnostic. I'm more of a deist where I, I believe that there is a something out there because I recognize humanity and I recognize the similarities that we all have. And there's got to be some, but I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen and I don't care, you know, but I don't need you to tell me that I'm loved. I know. I know that. I love that. Well and done. So I thought that was Hitler. And then what was really fun was sitting back to see who they called to be the, the person that I was going to be called to. And I'm like, ah, who's second? Who's getting the silver? I love it. But, but on the other hand, that's another thing. It's like, how do you think I'm going to do that position with a son that I'm taking care of? How do you think that's possible? You're, yeah. You don't even know what it means to take care of this child. Just like you guys, you're getting up and you're taking care of your son. You're taking care of your daughter. Have you ever, have you ever seen a man step off of his throne at the, on the front and go down and take one of his kids and take them out and then bring them back and then go sit on the stand? No, but that's what you see mothers doing all walking up with a baby on their hip to bear their testimony or conducting primary with a baby on their hip. My daughter, I, she was in the primary presidency and I was sitting in primary with my son and I watched her uh, get there early, set up chairs, open the closet, get the thing set up and then have to go back and console her son who's autistic and is having a sensory overload in this insane room that's called the primary room, you know, um, it was, I said, I, you'll, you'll never see this in priesthood. Yeah. This, I think going back to the whole stand thing, like, I mean, I've, I'm 40 now and I've spent pretty much a whole lifetime in the church. Um, it's very unusual to see a man come off stand, but I can say in my word, I have seen it once or twice, not very often, but it has happened. So just shout out to anyone who has done that. But like you say, it very seldom happens. And and I think that needs to change because just because you're on the bishop, like even if you're the bishop, if your wife's sitting there struggling with the kids, yeah, absolutely you should come off the stand and go help your wife. That should be your priority. It's your family, yeah. you know? Get off the stand in the first place. We And, and the congregation yeah. is probably yeah. looking around we know for someone you are. else to sit with. You know, yeah. look, look at me. I, I'm the bishop. I'm, you know, like, yeah, not saying everyone's like that, but, minister. yeah. Get down and do your thing. Um, I, well, I, I have found that service in the church can be healing, can be a place oh. where I was able to... Um, yeah, feel like I was getting a break and it was able to be sort of useful and constructive until it wasn't, until yeah. it, you know, um, until you realise that there's actually, I'm paying quite a big price for this service and it's having the opposite effect. Um, and, and I think that's worth keeping in mind that that it, it's not an all or nothing thing that, um, that you can be serving. Alan and I got so frustrated with um, 
how we felt ward activities should be done that we were like we're in charge and we sort of created that calling well i don't think it's because of we got frustrated at how ward activities should be done ward activities were becoming fewer and fewer and almost not happening and left yeah. till the last minute so we yeah. i i stepped yeah, in so i'm like this needs sorted i was being tactful but <laughs> well no right. i don't i don't do tactful and, uh, <laughs> yeah and, and you know hugely healing and beneficial until you realize oh my goodness I, i'm i'm exhausted um ministering ministering i i thought i was so up for especially because there's there's women in the world that i love that i would love to be able to fulfill that role yeah. for and um, yeah. i'm willing to accept a call for until it came through and i do not have anything to give you right yeah. now yeah that's and exactly I resent what you for asking me to do yeah. it yeah yeah i had um i've had primary presidency uh stake young women's presidency um and i could only do it for for maybe a year at the most and then I would, the primary I could do because my kids were all in primary, but I, I wanted to do it so badly. And, um, but you do it for a while and the, the exhaustion, like you say, of having to find a caregiver so that you could go and do a calling, uh, especially when you have a husband who's also at the church on Tuesday night. And so um, after a while, it was like, well, he's not quitting. He's the bishop. So evidently I'm the one that has to quit because yes. I have children I have to take care of. And and so there's that there's that feeling where you never get to stretch, you never get to use the talents that have been given you. You're, you're never, um, you know. I remember uh, there were a couple of times when the missionaries would ask if they could come over to our home and teach a, a, a investigator, and I would end up in the bedroom upstairs with my son so that he wouldn't disturb what was going on downstairs. And I just remember sitting in there and going, I've been banished to outer darkness. My husband is downstairs having this spiritual experience with the missionaries and this, this young girl who's investigating the church. How nice for you. How nice that you have all these stories of the spiritual feelings that you've had. And, you know, and, and, and so there's no growth. There's, there's not a lot of growth at that time. And the thing about having children that, are, that aren't going to be perpetually children that are never going to grow up and go away is that that never changes. Mothers of young children, eventually those kids will get into junior high and they will get a driver's license and they will get a job and they will leave home. And then you can maybe pursue a career or a talent or a calling or something like that. And uh, whatever. I know there's women out there, like you say, uh, you read the stories of, uh, what was her name? There was a she was she was another one of these people with a pedigree. Uh, they had 10 children. She also served in the General Relief Society presidency and she homeschooled all her kids and all that other crap that you hear. And I'm like, look, I am a realist. I know what it takes to take care of children. Somebody's helping her. She has yeah. a nanny, she has a driver, she has a cook, she has a governess, she has a, something. You cannot be a General Relief Society board member with 10 children at home homeschooling them. You can't do it. So throw that out the window and you know we, i don't know in your country but in our country they just called a woman to be on the supreme court she has seven children i think she has four biological children i think three of them are adopted i'm not sure but one of the things they said about her is she's an attorney she's an attorney she has served as an attorney in various different things very very you know credential um 
but they talked about how she drove her kids to school and helped out with the parties at elementary school and was such a good mother. And I'm like, no, you can't do it all. You can't do it. You can't be an attorney, work a full-time job. Now you're on the Supreme Court. You have seven little children. You're really, you're driving your kids to school. You're making lunches. You're doing the laundry. You're serving it with the PTA. And then you're, you're going to put on the Halloween party for your kids at school. No, it doesn't happen. So then, like you say, when those kids never grow up and go away, it never happens. So, so. we live lives of invisibility. We become less and less visible in our communities. There's often right. not places for right. us or for our children. Could exactly you talk right. about that for uh, a little? Um, and what well, do you and, do? And that was, the, that was the thing that I real, like I said, especially when that stake president made that comment that TJ comes to church every Sunday. And I was like, am I invisible? I am completely invisible. And, and I've said to my husband, I said, I, I, everything that you've accomplished, you know, I said, nobody stands up and says, oh, you know, President Steelman has uh, six children, uh, owned his own company, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you didn't have six children. I had six children. <laughs> You get credit yeah, for it, you know. I said you get the credit for it, but you didn't have to really do it, you know. Um, that's called the Santa Claus syndrome, you know, when the dads step in on the weekends, take everybody to Disneyland, then pat them on the head, and you know, that's the whole well, Mary pot them on the head and give them to the governess. We don't have governesses, darn it. Um, so you know, but that that's the thing is you slowly. I would run into people at the um, store or someplace and they'd say, hi, TJ. And I'd say, I'm sorry, I don't know you. We'd say, oh, you must be TJ's mom. You know, and that's what you become known as, you know, yeah. TJ's mom or somebody's mom. And, and um, that's who you are. That's your whole identity. That's your skill. That's your talent. That's your gift. You know, that's, that's, here's my favorite thing, Jane, you'll love this. He's going to get you to heaven. I'm oh. like, well, he's going to have a hard time now. I, I want to see this work. <laughs> I'm going to sit back and watch this happen. You know, because I, and I said that to my husband. I said, honey, it's so good that it was me that left the church and not you. Because you you're going to get all these other wives. And I said, and you can come down and visit me and your children in the other kingdoms because they're almost all less active. And, you know, but you and your other wives are going to be so good. So you're good. That's why it's no, that's why nobody cares. That's why when the stake president said, Oh, I know, I know brother Stillman, I heard about that. He didn't care. I don't hold any authority. I'm not going to do anything in the church. It doesn't matter if, if my husband left the church, this man that has served in all these positions that holds the priesthood. Can you imagine there, there would be casseroles and apple pie and home teachers over at our house trying to get him back, trying to missionary him back into the church, but they don't care about the women that leave the church. We don't need you anyway, you know? So that's the invisible part is like, you're kind of invisible anyway, you know? So it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Women are just in the kitchen, popping out children. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. why did you leave the church? You know, honestly, I was talking to my husband about that. And I said, I, I had left, I told my husband, I was never going back to the temple four years ago. And because I had struggled with the, um, you know, cause I went through the church when we, you know, gave ourselves to our husbands, he received us, you know, um, 
I bowing our heads and promising to obey our husbands as he obeys God. Um, and I couldn't do it anymore. I just said, you know, I tried to make it work. I actually became a temple worker because I wanted to obey and I wanted to, I wanted to have a testimony of the temple, but I hated it. I hated it. It was so misogynistic. And so I thought, well, I'll be a temple worker. And that way I don't actually have to do the ceremonies. I, you know, I'll be working, doing stuff. And it was, it was fun. There was a time when I was doing some, I was, I must've been doing some work for the dead, but I was a temple worker. So after the, after the, the veil, when you come through the veil and then you go into the celestial room, I didn't know that going into the celestial room was part of the ceremony. So I left, when I came out of the veil, I just went back into the room where the temple workers sat and waited for their next shift. And they came and got me and said, you have to go into the celestial room. That's part of the ceremony. And I was like, you people have lost your freaking minds. This is crazy. But we, so we went, in, we went, we moved to Arizona. We went to the Gilbert temple. I veiled my face. I promised to obey my husband. And I came out and I said, I'm never going in there again. I can't do this is garbage. This is, this is not a temple ceremony from God. And he was like, he just goes quiet. You know, when I do these things. So I was already like fed up with this, this silly stuff, you know? And, um, Honestly, it was like a couple of years ago when President Nelson stood up and said um, that we've always had the priesthood. What, what are you talking about? When, if you're an ordained temple person, you know that you have the priesthood. We've never taught that women don't have the priesthood. And I remember going, oh, that's not true. You're gaslighting. That's not true. I said, what on earth is happening? And then he did his myopic comment about his daughter and daughter-in-law that had lost her father and was grieving. She went to Wendy instead of President Nelson because she knows she knows him well enough to probably know he's a, you know, probably has absolutely zero emotion. And so he goes to Wendy. Wendy goes to it says, you know, your daughter-in-law is grieving. What should I tell her? Tell her she's being myopic. I was like, what? I mean, right there, I was like, something's happening. There, what is happening? There's no love. That was cruel. That was a cruel thing to say. And then I started, I started hearing the stuff about the CES letters. And can I tell you, I, that didn't bother me. The CES letters didn't bother me. I don't care if there's a steel sword. I don't care if there's horses. I figured, eh, come on, it's it, whatever. Who knows? Who cares? It's a fun story. I loved Ether. I love the faith stories. You know, it's a happy, happy little book that you can read. And, and so that didn't bother me. But when I heard, when I read this, the biography of David O. McKay, and I saw the way men who were leading the church astray were allowed to continue to do that and the stuff that the different people that, you know, that the, this diary revealed how different apostles would go to David O. McKay and what they were doing in David O. Like, for example, the Mormon Doctrine book. Bruce R. McConkie writes the Mormon Doctrine book. David O. McKay said, I don't want that published. And he published it anyway. And then he said, all right, it's what's done is done, but it cannot be. There, here are 1,600 changes that need to be made in this book. And they published it anyway. Ezra told to be quiet. Stop talking about communism in conference. 
They sent him to Germany. They thought maybe if we send him to Germany, he'll shut up about this stuff. And they lied about it and talked about how he was sent there because he was the secretary of agriculture. And, and they made it out like he was sent there on this special mission and he loved the German people. That was all a lie. It was a, it, and I, so I, that, that book that is supposed to build people's faith ripped me apart. I thought the lies and the untruths that have been told. So then that started me down the rabbit hole. What other lies have you been telling? And then I read a house full of females and I read about Brigham Young and how polygamy was treacherous. It was horrible. These women suffered. They starved. They were starving. They were poor and their, their husbands didn't even like them, you know? And, and I read that. And then I read the LDS and the gays and I found out about proposition eight in California. And I, and the, and I read about the, um, the things that were happening with the Mark Harm, you know, Hoffman stuff and how they were paying people under the table so that it wouldn't be under the church's name. And, and I thought, this is a freaking corporation. This is not a church of God. This is a corporation that's being run. And I was like, okay, I can't do this anymore. And so it was, a, it was years and years of simple things, stupid things like firing all the janitors, and telling women, who else is going to go clean the church? The guys are all at work, right? So when you're done cleaning your own home and baking bread and taking care of your 10 children, could you go over and please scrub the toilets over the church? Because to save money, we're going to fire the janitorial service in the church. <laughs> Do you hear how ridiculous that sounds to save money? How much save money did money. it have? Atlanta. It was giving you opportunities to serve. I mean, come on. But it, it wasn't like, I don't want to be trailing my daughter down to the church, yeah. you know, and trying right. to occupy her while I'm trying to clean toilets, you know. I, yeah. I mean, I remember we 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 had the same cleaner in our war building for, I mean, how many years, Jane? She was there for a long time. And that poor woman was devastated when they took her job from her. Devastated. They lost, they lost her job, yeah. Devastated. Yeah. Same thing. We had a wonderful couple when we lived yeah in this tiny little ward and they were farmers and they supplemented their income by, and they were so proud of what they did. And they would go up to people and they would say, you get your hands off that door. I just cleaned that door, you know? And then they canceled the church service and they lost, they lost insurance. They lost all kinds of stuff, you know, but I don't know. So it was years and years coming, but my daughter-in-law joined the church. Um, they went, Oh, you want to hear something to be ashamed of. So my son was less active. He got married to this wonderful girl. They have a baby. She had been raised uh, in a good Christian home. And she said, I want to go back to church. And he said, um, he said, well, I, I, you know, I can't go to another, I've never gone to another church. She goes, I'll take, you know, I'll take the discussion. So they took the discussion. She, she was baptized a, a year later, you know how there's such this rush to get them through the temple. And it was like, okay, it's been a year. You got to go through the temple. And, and she was pregnant. And, but the baby wasn't due, you know, until, I don't know, sometime. So we'll go to, we'll go to the temple the first of December so that you can get there before the baby's born, you know, and I'm part of this whole thing. I'm, I'm right there saying, we got to go to the temple. got to go to the temple. And um, she has the baby early, but I'm like, Okay. I, I mean, I am like pushing her to go to the temple like a week after this baby's been born. That's how obedient and I'm following this protocol the way it is. 
So they go through the temple. She's got a brand new baby. It's chaos. It's chaos. And she's just, you know. And then because they're also living in a downtown urban ward that's struggling, they put her in the primary presidency. And she doesn't, she's never been to primary in her life. She doesn't know how the primary program works. And she's overwhelmed. My son now is taking a calling. He's working in young men's. Now he's working. He's doing, he's, they are reliving our life. Total, I am watching them relive our life. He's gone all the time. She's like, I'm not putting up with this because she wasn't raised in the church. And so, you know, they find they finally left. And one of her biggest things was polygamy. And I said the same rhetorical crap that everybody, oh no, polygamy was just so that they could take care of the widows and, and build up the community. When they got out to Utah, they had to rebuild the community. I gave her all that crap. I didn't know. I didn't know my own church. I didn't know my church history. I just took care of kids and listened to conference. So, and that's the sin is that we don't know our own church. We don't even know what we believe in. So. I love that. We don't know our own church. Um, yeah. I, I completely agree. Is there anything you think that would bring you back? Oh, boy, I don't know. There'd have to be so many changes that would completely change the gospel frame. You know, the the architecture is so set up to be. And, you know, there's so many people that you cannot you cannot disparage the good things. You know, the fact that that our kids learned the things that they learned by going to church every Sunday there. These are good things. You know, Richard Rohr is a Franciscan priest. You know, you guys, yeah. He teaches about the different stages of faith. And he even admits that the Mormon church is probably one of the best places to go through stage one. But eventually you have to move on to the adult phase of your faith, which is when you question and when you say, that doesn't really make sense. And, you know, and he questions his own faith but he loves it. He loves his Franciscan Catholicism. Um, but he, he says things the way they are, because you can do that in the Catholic church. Mm. You can still be Catholic and you, and you go to, you go to catechism to learn what those rituals stand for. So when you go through the rituals, when people go to mass, they know what those symbols stand for in the Mormon church. We say they're symbols. When you go to the temple, the more you go, the more you'll understand. And then when you ask somebody, like when I was made a temple worker, I was told you can go ask the, the temple matron anything you want. So I said, why do we veil our faces? She goes, I don't know. So where's the symbolism? You don't even know. We don't. Nobody knows what this symbolism is that we're all supposed to secretly find out on our own through prayer and fasting and attending the temple every day. And it's like, you don't even know what it is. Do you still consider yourself Mormon? No. And, you know, again, I think it was easier for me to leave because I was raised Methodist until I was 12. You know, my biological father was was uh, not uh, a, a practicing Christian. Um, my, you know, his brothers and sisters were all the best down to earth, good people you'd ever want. And they smoked and they drank and they played poker, but they would help you. They would go over and help their neighbor in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to be told to stop and help somebody change the tire on their car. 
they just knew that that's what you did. That's, that's how, you know, that's how people with a conscience, you know, I think when they talk about the light of Christ that everybody has, it's that humanity that you know you're supposed to go and help somebody. And they did that. They showed me more Christianity than a lot of the things that, that were, that are, um, you're obligated to do like ministering, you know, you don't do that out of love. You do it. We live in a neighborhood right now. Nobody is a member of the church, you know, and when anybody down the street finds out that somebody has COVID or somebody's sick food right over there, how are you feeling? A text, you know, it's, can anybody take me to the airport heartbeat? They don't need a handbook like Elena was saying. They don't need a handbook to tell them yeah. how to be a good neighbor, how to be loving, how to look past people's quirkiness and love them. They don't need that. So I don't see any reason to go back. Like I said, my mm. my my boys are all less active. Evidently, the one in the wheelchair that's nonverbal is guaranteed a place. So I'm not worried about him. My husband's going to be given other women. So I'm good. He's good with that too. So, so no, he's not really, but you know, so, and, and, and he and I have, our marriage is better than it's ever been before because I know now because he, what he's done, the fact that he stayed with me, that he loves me, that his love for me is not tied up with the church. And so I now, you know, I'm working through my resentment I'm working through all the things because I know now where he stands in our relationship. And so I, I don't know, our life is better than it's ever been before. I would see no reason to go back. I can't ever imagine anybody apologizing. I can't ever imagine six women being put into the apostleship. You know, I can't ever, I can never see that happening. So, and you know what, when women say we need, you know, there were only two women that spoke at the last conference. I'm like, thank you. I don't want these crazy women speaking at conference. They start talking to you like you're three years old. They go into their baby voice. I want to scream when these women talk. You know, if you want to let somebody that, you know, has some critical thinking speak, yeah, that sounds good. But they don't have any authority, even the General Relief Society. They're all under the umbrella of the priesthood. They All they're doing is throwing up crap that, you know, that was... They're quoting each other. And then they talk to you in a baby voice. So it's like, no, I don't want to hear any more women talk. You know, I love so, this. I if, gonna, this. if they want to invite Brene Brown to talk at conference. Oh, or, let's take that. Then I'll, yeah. I'd love, that's what we need, you know. So but, I think our, our poor lady Daisy um, is, is, I think we need to get done. You people are done, right, attention. Daisy? Yeah, da Daisy's really injured her arm, so we're going to go and get that taken care of. But Renee, I have so many more questions that I want to ask you about making a mixed faith marriage work and how. That's for an episode on part two. Yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe we'll come back. That will bring me one back. We'll talk about it. No. Oh, that would be I'm so serious because it. I I don't. I it's 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 hard because I do get frustrated, and um. But that's what I'm doing is I'm, I'm bringing up old resentments and I'm, I'm learning, he's learning to listen. I'm, I have to learn to let go of old resentments and he's, you know, I've got like the, I've got like the, the gun pulled back and it's like, if he just does one thing, you know, like I'm going to go over and clean the church, I'm just like, you know, and I kind of, 
let you know let him have it and he's taking it so well he's being so patient with me um but, but that's what it looks like and that's yeah. what i'm excited to hear we're, we're not talking about you know like we used to pretending that we were yeah. fine with our husbands you know yeah. being away all the time and we can talk about really making it work <laughs> um so yeah if you if you would be up for let's let's arrange i would do that in a heart <laughs> Before we let you go, could you tell us a little bit about, you have a podcast, right? I do. And I'm just trying to find a picture of my, my little, okay. This is a picture when she was younger, but um, this is, this is my, oh, wait, wait. This is my granddaughter that you look like, sweet Daisy. That's this a granddaughter. The, do you see their similarities? Like between, twins. Oh, uh, now she's like twins now. So that was a long time ago, but anyways, <laughs> I have a podcast. It's called She Became Visible. And um, I was really inspired because there, I have a friend uh, that lives in London and um, she decided to let her hair go gray, cut it in this fabulous mohawk. And she said, you know, when I was just what I would walk the streets with my brown hair, it was like nothing, nothing, nothing. And then she said, I let my hair go gray and I shaved the sides, you know, and she's got this pompadour that's going up. And she said, suddenly I became visible. And she said, I actually had a modeling agency stop and ask me, and, you know, and she's, she's like, I've never, ever, nobody ever has even said to me, oh, you're so pretty. She said, I've never heard that in my life. She said, my husband has, my husband said, oh, you're my model. But she said, I don't fit the stereotypical pretty woman. You know, um, she's, um, she's just got that artistic look. So when she said that word, I became visible, I was like, oh my gosh, that's the name of my podcast because that's the thing. It's like you get old, your hair goes gray, you have a disabled child, um, you have to quit your job because you're now uh, the caregiver to your parents. You, you don't even exist any longer. And 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 you're you're dispensable. We, we, we can replace you with a, a 30-year-old or whatever. Um, it's It's just completely... It, it's, it's people talk about it. I know it's being talked about. I know it's a popular subject right now, but I feel like there's a lot of talk, but there's not a lot of action, you know, going on. Um, but I, so I just want to have guests on. Um, Allison is going to be one of my first guests. She's got some things coming up that she never, I mean, she was an architect. Her and her husband worked together as uh, designers. And um, she, you know, she just has such an exciting story about how and this at 64 years old, she's becoming visible, you know? Um, so that's just what it's about. We're just gonna have guests that talk about all kinds of things about being true to yourself, finding yourself and being out there. So thank you for it. giving me that opportunity to talk about Oh, that. well, we're gonna, we're gonna link to all of your work in the show notes and as episodes okay. come out, we'll link to all okay. of that. But we also really want to link as well when we get these up um, to your Sunstone talk, which was, oh. Amazing. Thank, Thank you. you and one thing I should mention too, my podcast is actually the Mormon is going to be under the Mormon discussions uh, umbrella. Oh, awesome. So, yeah, it will be it, Bill. Bill's going to be uh, helping out with a lot of that stuff and I'll be working with him and um, just, you know, I love the fact that Bill really opened up his, his umbrella. He opened it up and said, we need some women. We need some yes. women voices of the podcast world. 
And uh, that's why I think you guys are so fun. And I love Jane. I love when you when you get on with the the British, you know, the Brit Vengers and how you will call them. You'll call them on something. Now, now, I don't know if we should be talking like that. And I'm like, oh, I probably would have said something <laughs> like that, too. You go, girl. You know, Jane definitely keeps us all in check. That's for sure. Yeah. And but I, I love that, though. But what I'm saying yeah. is I love that. I love that we can all ha be in different places, push back on things, but we're still respectful and we're still, we still love each other. It's amazing, you know. I, I need Jane on my podcast because I go to ad hominem. So when Brad Wilcox came out, man, I was having to like, because all I could think <laughs> of was stupid adolescence things that you say about people, you know, like... Mm, you know, uh, and you call people on that all the time. And I, I'm just, that's kind of my default. I have to watch it because that's my default. But well, anyway. you know, I, I don't know if I shared this, but you know, they, I think because we're a group of people who respect each other so much that um, I, I remember over Christmas and we had, you know, there, there was something that we were discussing and I felt like, oh, I've used my one complaint. I've, I've said yeah. that maybe no to this idea that I don't think yeah. it's a good idea. So uh, I don't want to say anything else because, and because of the yeah. group of people that we are, you know, because they are so supportive, um, it, it's just not a thing. And I love that. I think I've, I've been so used to being invisible and having to, you know, when you sit in Relief Society and you're like, I really want to say the thing uh, and then it comes out in a ball of rage and resentment and oh, words yeah. and yeah so I'm yeah. unlearning all of that and uh, and this podcasting space this um ex-Mormon world and post-Mormon world progressive Mormon world is such a great place to find out that actually our voices are not only valid but they're really welcome so yeah. thank you for being one. Well, of those and I don't know what it is about you people over there in the United Kingdom, because I've met so many people on Instagram and, and Australia, Bali, London, you know, Scotland. I'm like, why am I going over? And then, like I said, you know, Nemo and Peter Bleakley listening to that. The Pharisees was so enlightening. I mean, and I started seeing that. I thought that's where President Nelson is having a problem. He is a pharisaical, whatever that word is, leader. He's He doesn't care about people. He cares about obedience to the laws. And that's where I was like, wow, okay, that's amazing. Uh, but they're so brilliant. They're, they're, I have such envy for people that actually have memories. I, oh. I'm like, I, you know, I, I look at Nemo and I think, yeah, you know what? I'm I'm Nemo. I have a memory of a freaking clownfish. You know, it's yeah, like, me I too. I read these stupid books and I want to throw out all this knowledge. And then I'm like, ah, it, I'm was, like that. it was, it was some, uh, uh, you know, on the road and he went to somewhere, but, and then he done this and you're like, I, something like that. <laughs> I can't fight, I can't fight, fight my own de deconstruction. Cause I can't. Yeah. I'm the same. I'm exactly the same. I struggle to retain information. Yeah. Thank you all. Ladies. Oh my gosh, this and was so audience. Fun. This was, I knew it was going to be, um, I knew this was going to be a special episode and, and there, watch this space because we will all return. Um, what else did we need to tell you But Oh yeah, uh, audience, we have got more stuff to talk about. And so we're going to do another special episode part two following up from Alana's 
previous weekend we're all still recovering mm. from the roller coaster that, that has been the past few days so i was frustrated that i'd resigned my membership after i watched you do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. one of my family members said the same they're like i wish i hadn't resigned now i would have totally been there with you yeah <laughs> but um yeah we we have I, I think this sunday we're going to be talking about some issues from a believing member approach that oh. i think is going to be well, it is. It's going to be a little bit controversial. So it's an episode we're going to ask you to come along, support us. It's um, this has been a roller coaster couple of weeks, and it's going to continue on Sunday. So yeah, yeah. please come and uh, and and help us be brave and bold and all of those things. Um, Daisy, are you good? Do you have any final words that you want to share with James us? James asking, do you, do you have anything you want to share with anyone? Do you want to give a thumbs no. up? No. Uh, we hope we your will... arm feels better. Yeah, be sure we, and put on your put on the, uh, the yeah. text or something. Tell us how Daisy's we arm bless is. Bless your arm, child. But in the meantime, <laughs> Renee, thank you so much. And Elena, you can give her a said we bless your arm, child. What's that? <laughs> I could, I could, if she allowed me to. Yeah. So, Renee, <laughs> we want to thank you for everything. You ladies need to go to bed. I don't know how you stay. Oh, this this is early for me. This is early for me. We're going ahead. Um, and we will. I, I tell you what, we'll say blessing your journey for the following episode to make sure that uh that we that we set that up because we yeah, would like absolutely. to properly bless your journey. Absolutely. Okay, everyone, yeah. we will see you all, all right. super soon. Don't forget yes. to find us in the all usual right. channels. If you're joining us on know, Spotify, you can now visually see us. We're we're uploading uh video podcasts. Um, find us in all the usual places, and don't forget, please get in touch because we love to hear from you. If you have any questions for Renee or any of the Brit Avengers gang, um, Alana or myself, then just give us a shout out. You know how to get us on social media, people. Be good and have a great rest of your week. Bye. See you all soon. Bye, everyone.